how that could possibly happen, how one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes, David French, and Declan Garvey, our senior editor for The Morning Dispatch. We're going to talk about those new classified documents that have been revealed from Biden's vice presidential office, new House rules coming down for the Republican majority. What should be done about George Santos? And of course, uh, Brazil's own January 6th moment. And maybe, maybe I'll get Steve to talk about whether he's Team Harry or Team Will at the end. We'll see. lay of the land about what we know, what we don't know about these new Biden classified documents? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's important to clarify before we dive into this, the differences in terms of how we know what we know in each of the cases between the Biden docs and and the Trump docs. The the Mar-a-Lago search and, and what we've learned over the past couple months there, that's from, you know, Trump himself has confirmed that that search took place. Uh, the Justice Department has been uh, putting filing after filing under penalty of perjury in, in court. And, and, you know, we have kind of a little bit more confirmation in terms of what was actually found, how it was found, and, and the process that it took to, to get it back to the National Archives. With this Biden story, all we have right now are uh, public reportings from CBS News, NBC News, citing sources familiar, um, and then a, a statement from President Biden's lawyer that explains kind of their side of the story and how this played out. So there's high likelihood that we're going to learn a lot more about how this came to pass. And, and um, so we can only really go off of what we know right now. But what that we do know right now is that in November, a couple of days before the midterm elections, uh, two attorneys for President Biden found in his personal office of this think tank that they set up at the University of Pennsylvania after his vice presidency uh, found about 10 classified documents in a locked storage container, uh, is, is how they phrased it, in a manila envelope, and immediately uh, alerted the National Archives and turned uh, within a, 24 hours had turned it over to the archives and, and the archives got in touch with the Justice Department and, and there's been an investigation ongoing for the past two months led by a U.S. attorney out of the Northern District of Illinois, John Lausch. Yesterday, we're recording this Thursday morning, last night on Wednesday, we got reporting that there is another batch of these documents that was found because after that initial uh, batch was found in early November, that is when President's aides decided to do some more searching and and see if this uh, kind of thing could turn up elsewhere in where he worked in his vote, the post-vice presidency period. And so we found that there's at least another one batch. And who knows, by the time this is released, we could have found two or three more. So that's where we are right now. President Biden has maintained that he has no idea what these uh, documents are. He says that um, he was surprised that they were found there and that his team has been cooperating fully with the investigation and that uh, that should be wrapped up soon. But who knows? David, I want to get to the comparison in a moment. But first, um, what struck me about what Declan just said 
is the idea that classified documents were found in a manila envelope. Because that's not how classified documents are kept when they're at home, (laughs) when they're where they're supposed to be. So it means that it's not that, you know, folders were sort of accidentally put into a moving box or something. The documents themselves were removed from their folders and put into a different envelope before they were transported, which just seems, everything about this seems really strange to me. Yeah, it does. I mean, if what it raises for me is you wonder how were these things stored when they were moved from the by you know from the naval observatory or the biden offices how were these things stored because it strikes me as particularly egregious say if somebody went into a skiff grabbed some documents walked out with them and then um put them in you know and then they're late, later shuffled in with larger document stacks uh makes me wonder how these things were being handled beforehand. Um, So there's a lot we don't know. And look, we can draw distinctions between the Trump story that we know so far and the Biden story that we know so far. Um, But there's so little, as Declan said, about the Biden story that we know so far. And so I, I think a lot of these sort of explainers that are saying, well, here's what is different about Trump and Biden are interesting, but perhaps premature. I mean, we don't have evidence of obstruction uh, right now, um, but we just don't have evidence of much of anything right now, except that the documents were not where they were supposed to be. And a second set of documents was not where they were supposed to be. And one thing that I would just say, and, and Sarah, I'm sure this is your experience as well. It is actually easy not to mishandle (laughs) classified information. Like, I just want to be really clear about this. This is not the thing that's hard to do. Like, they set up systems that make it hard to mishandle the classified information. That's, That's the reality. So it's not like this is a giant challenge in life to figure out how not to mishandle classified information. So let's just get that out there right now. So this has to be investigated. And all of the commentary about how this is clearly different from Trump, again, yes, based on what we know. Yes, based on what we know, but we don't know very much. Steve, do you think it's different than Trump in important material ways? Yeah, I mean, I think with the caveat that David offers, um, it, it is. Um, if, if you look at what happened with, with Donald Trump, I mean, there was basically, best case scenario, a, a reckless disregard for uh, how these documents were handled. But I think abundant evidence in, in the reporting and, and, as David notes, in admissions that we've now gotten that basically Donald Trump said he wanted these documents and he was taking them regardless. And then the, the, the federal government, NARA, um, the National Archives, and I'm going to forget the rest of the acronym. NARA, um, <laughs> asked for them back. The FBI engaged in extended negotiations with Team Trump. They refused. They um, apparently engaged in some dodgy behavior to avoid returning them. Um, and they're still, in effect, claiming that there's nothing wrong. Those things, again, with the caveat that we don't know everything, don't appear to be a play in the Biden document case. If 
the official story is to be believed. They discovered these documents, they turned them over, and uh, there's now an investigation. Having said that, the front end of this is similar, and the basic big picture takeaway, I think, does have some parallels with, with the Trump case. These are classified documents, some of them reportedly sensitive compartmentalized information uh, among the highest, most highly classified documents the U.S. government has in a folder marked personal. Well, they're not personal. These are not personal documents. They had no business being uh, in Biden's office. And the person who made a case against irresponsible handling of such documents um, most compellingly was Joe Biden himself when he went after Donald Trump for what happened, making the argument that these documents belong to the government and have to be handled with extraordinary care. He failed on that. Uh, at, at the very least, the Biden team failed on that. We'll learn more about the details of exactly how. But the second part that I think is really troubling at this point is the refusal of Biden world to provide really any information publicly about what's happened here. And their claim, if you listen to the White House press secretary, is, well, we can't really talk about this because it's now in the hands of the Department of Justice and we don't want to get in the way of their investigations. Baloney. You can tell us what you know about this. Undoubtedly, they have done their own investigation. This Undoubtedly, Joe Biden has said, if, if it is in fact the case that he didn't himself know how they got there, undoubtedly he has said, how did they get there? What's the explanation here? You can begin to provide that information to the American people. I do think the fact that they were discovered six days before the election and, and that information was withheld at a time when Donald Trump's documents were being widely discussed presents additional problems. And the final point is, uh, just in the political sense here, I think this creates a lot of trouble for Merrick Garland, the potential prosecution of Donald Trump. Um, setting aside the legal case, which I know, Sarah, you and David uh, have talked about on that that niche podcast that some people listen to, um, the political issues here, I think, are are significant. And we've already seen Republicans do everything they can to to jump on the fact that this is that there are these similarities and that Joe Biden can no longer point at Donald Trump and say this was irresponsible without having to answer for his own his own problems. So I actually um, find the timing of it, at least of what we know right now, to be the worst news for the Biden team, because it looks like they were trying to cover it up. It looks like they intentionally did not want this out before the election. Um, However, I disagree with you on one point, Steve, which is that this is bad news for Merrick Garland. No way. This is the best news Merrick Garland ever got. This is Christmas for Merrick Garland because something that was going to be a very, very difficult decision just got much easier. And uh, Merrick Garland also had another stroke of good luck. So there were two Trump-appointed U.S. attorneys who were held over from the last administration who are still in their positions out of the 93 U.S. attorneys that are out there. One is in Delaware. He was held over because of the Hunter Biden investigation, and that is still ongoing, although seems to be wrapping up. We'll see. Uh, but the other one, and this is, you know, just coincidental, John Lausch in the Northern District of Illinois, Chicago, 
He was held over because of a basically political investigation going on into a powerful family in Illinois. And how lucky for Merrick Garland that he has this Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who can now do the preliminary investigation into these documents and helps also... Part of the reason John Lausch was held over, that investigation was ongoing, but the administration got a lot of phone calls from the two senators in Illinois. They are Democrats saying you should keep John Lausch there. John Lausch has a ton of credibility with members on uh, the Hill because of some of the document production work he did during the Trump years. Uh, So you've got this sort of impeccably credentialed, highly competent person who Merrick Garland has handed this off to. I don't know. I think Merrick Garland's having the best week of anyone right now. Um, (laughs) David, I want to ask you about the timing thing, though, because to Declan's point on there's so much we don't know. But the timing thing to me, this one thing we do know is just so damning. (laughs) The the timing thing regarding this is this is something we've known since November. And that's even if you believe their timeline. Like they're presenting sort of what I assume is the best case scenario. And their best case scenario is they knew about it uh, before the election and right before the election. And like, why were they starting to look? How did this all come about? Was it that the Mar-a-Lago raid happened and they thought to go peruse some of this? And if that's the case, then how are they just now finding these additional documents? You're telling me that back in, let's again, using their timeline, That on November 2nd, you found classified documents in Manila envelope. And everyone's like, oh, no, give them to the National Archives right away. Anyway, back to my Wordle game. And you didn't rip apart the rest of that place looking for documents. I I don't understand. And just one more point before David answers. They didn't disclose this voluntarily. They only started talking about this because CBS News had reporting that indicated that these documents had been found. So they, they, didn't, they didn't disclose this. The, you know, the, the, the self-described most transparent administration in history that drove this contrast with Donald Trump, they didn't disclose this on their own. Yeah, there is a spectrum that between we promptly find, we find classified documents that, are, that have been mishandled, we promptly notify, issue a press statement, com- and are completely transparent and open in our communications, and evading a subpoena. Like there's a spectrum of behavior in between those two poles. And it seems like the Biden behavior, well, of his, but the Biden team behavior, and we don't know about Biden himself, is at least right now somewhere between those two poles. And we just don't know where it is. And and uh, yes, the abs- it is absolutely a problem for them that this was discovered early in November. We only know about it now because of leaks. And then lo and behold, what a wild, crazy coincidence that you then find the second batch. And you just wonder, like, when is it going to be the third batch? When is the fourth batch? If there is, it's we're in a position where from the standpoint of public confidence, let, let, let's back up just a minute, public confidence that somebody can handle classified information. <laughs> I mean, this is Hillary, then Trump, then Biden. And again, we can parse severity. We can absolutely parse severity. But what we can't parse is propriety. It, each one of them was 
improperly handling classified information to varying degrees of severity. And, and, and I'm sorry, that's just, it's not good enough. It's absolutely not good enough. And no one can be on their high horse right now. I, I, I don't think we can overestimate just how much the Biden team is reliant on Donald Trump here to make their own political case on, on a whole host of issues. But like, you know, the, the, the press secretary, Steve mentioned it earlier, uh, the Kareem Jean-Pierre's performance yesterday was pitiful, like <laughs> getting up there. Of, of, of course, we all know that, that President Biden takes this stuff very seriously. We, we don't know that. There's, there's no indication. I mean, the fact that we have found this now in two separate locations, like maybe he takes it more seriously than Donald Trump does. Sure. But that isn't a, a, you know, a useful argument if you're trying to make the case that he actually takes this seriously on its own merits. And, and we're just going to kind of, you know, you see that with Hunter's foreign business dealings. Well, at least it's not as bad as what Jared Kushner is doing in Saudi Arabia. Like there, there's a lot of just kind of defining the, the, the presidency down and defining the, um, the, the qualities down. And, and there's just this tacit assumption that I think a lot of Biden world holds is that, well, at least we're not as bad as Trump on any of this stuff. And so, you know, give us the benefit of the doubt, give us, you know, trust us, don't worry. Like, we know we're not as bad as, as the last guys. And it's just, and it's going to make, uh, Sarah, to, to maybe set you up as a, on a useful transition here, it's going to make the House Republicans job so much easier to like the, the details that we do know on this story is that some of the documents were briefing materials on Ukraine that has something to do with the Hunter Biden investigation and that the center where this was found uh, has received almost $60 million in funding from China over the past decade. And some of that was before uh, Biden left office and it was set up and it was going to the University of Pennsylvania, not necessarily the center, but some of it was going directly to the center. And you know that that's going to be a huge talking point for, um, for these House Republicans as they set up these investigations. And it's just such a self-inflicted error that uh, they're not going to have to contend with this. I also, I just feel like um, I because we don't know a lot, there's a lot of benefit of the doubt being given to one side of yes. the equation here. Yes. And, you know, if I think if we stepped back and just took the facts without sort of the atmospherics, um, you know, when you find classified documents and call the National Archives, I would assume the National Archives says something to the effect of, okay, are there any more classified documents there? So one of the things we don't know is whether at that point they answered, Correct. We have checked there are no more classified documents, only to then find more classified documents later, at which point these start looking very parallel. And I again, there's, as Declan has said, there's a lot we don't know. And this is one of those things. My only point being, don't assume good faith on one side, because right. we kind of know there's bad faith on the other side. We just don't know the faith on, on this other yeah. side, because they're not telling us because they didn't come out with any of this. Um, and that's where I think I'm having a hard time assuming good faith. The Trump team, don't get me wrong, didn't tell us either. We learned through a, you know, the, the execution of a search warrant. And everyone's like, yeah, so this was totally different. They called the National Archives themselves. All right, let's, I'll, I'm going to wait and see on some of this. Yeah. Immediately is, is like, yes, it's, 
according to their timeline, it's right after they found them. It's also six years after the documents were there. So like, <laughs> it's not immediate in any sense of the and word. several months after the Mar-a-Lago right. raid, which again, if you're going to have your boss constantly talking about what an egregious betrayal of America's trust this is, I just find it hard to believe that nobody started looking and being like, let's just make sure our hands are clean here. I don't know. Um, and Declan, Declan's point's really important. Like if your predecessor is a bank robber, <laughs> then the rule is not that all crimes short of bank robbery are therefore not crimes anymore, or all scandals short of bank robbery are not scandals anymore. And that that seems to be sort of kind of the talking point of, well, we're still, you should be reliever better than the other guy. Okay, A, maybe probably not known. Those facts, objection, presuming facts, not in evidence. We don't have the full picture. And B, so what? So what? <laughs> There's a there should be accountability here. I mean, don't forget the first defense that we heard this week was, yeah, but it's way fewer documents. It's like it's it's a drop in the bucket compared to the number of documents. Isn't that a distinction? And then they're like, well, we have some more documents. It's like, well, <laughs> okay, so why don't we just hold off on too many comparisons <laughs> when you're trying to make one okay and one egregious and indictment worthy? Right. And with that, Declan, I did enjoy your transition that I then steamrolled over, but we're going to come <laughs> back to it on what the house looks like right now. And yeah, I mean, what do we know about the deals that Kevin McCarthy struck? What do we not know about deals that Kevin McCarthy struck? And how do you think it's going to shape the next two years? Oh, me? Oh, definitely you. <laughs> yeah. So th- there is, there is, uh, Again, similar to similar to the Biden document scenario, there's some that we know, and there's a lot that we don't know uh, that will will come trickling out over the course of the next few months. You know, that's there was a rules package passed on on Monday night uh, with all Republicans except one voting in favor of it, and really the only kind of concrete change that was being discussed that ended up in that package was the um, reduction in the the threshold to call for a vote to to oust the speaker down from, I forget what it was under Pelosi, but McCarthy was discussing five, they moved it down to one. So now any one member can force that vote. But there's a whole lot that was discussed and bargained for and handshake agreements that did not end up in that document. Um, I think we're starting to see some of it now in terms of who's getting placed on what committees in the as the steering committee meets and, and assigns those um, responsibilities, who's getting chairmanship gavels, and there will be a lot of frustration trickling out over the next couple of weeks and months as we start to hear exactly why certain members got certain committee assignments and who voted for that on the steering committee and how that played out and, you know, seniority getting bumped and, and, and what have you. So that, that will, that will ruffle some feathers. We're also, you know, seeing the first couple of days here, there've been a lot of uh, symbolic messaging votes so far that the house has taken. Um, they voted to pass legislation clawing back or rescinding some of the funding that Democrats gave the IRS last year. None of this stuff is going to go anywhere. I think Jonah wrote a good G file yesterday about how it's in both sides interest for the Republicans to tout this legislation that they're doing that's not going to do anything, but Democrats to also tout the legislation Republicans are doing that's not going to do anything. Um, and then yesterday we had uh, a, a vote on the Born Alive Act that would um, require physicians to uh, administer medical care and do everything that they can to um, 
preserve the life of infants who uh, are born after a botched abortion. I think one Democrat voting in favor of that one at present. And so that's kind of, I, I think it tees up what we're going to see a lot of in this Congress, which is Republicans forcing Democrats to go on the record on tough issues, allowing their own members to vote on uh, issues that they can parrot back home and say, look, I'm fighting, I'm, I'm doing this. It's not going to go anywhere. Uh, we have, it's basically a trial run for if and when Republicans gain back the, the Senate and the, the White House in 2024. But <laughs> buckle up. We, there, there are some big fights coming down the road. I'm sure we'll talk about the debt ceiling in, in the summer. Um, but that's kind of where we stand right now. Steve, what do you make of all of this in the wake of last week's 15 rounds of voting for McCarthy? Well, we're learning a lot more. I mean, I think some of the reforms that the uh, House Freedom Caucus or Freedom Caucus adjacent um, protesters or McCarthy opponents pushed for uh, are, are good and are things that have been talked about for a long time to help return power, sort of uh, turn power down from a centralized speaker's office leadership office to uh, members and to the committees. Uh, having said that, um, I think what we're seeing here is the kinds of bartering and horse trading that took place to allow Kevin McCarthy to become speaker is exactly the kind of inside the beltway, swampy maneuvering that Republicans have theoretically been against, you know, from, I mean, depending on when you, you start counting, either from the contract with America time or Tea Party time, but certainly in the Donald Trump era, I mean, this was what he ran against, was this kind of Washington swampy behavior, secret deals. Um, Punchbowl reported that there uh, were a, a number of secret deals or a secret deal with a number of different component parts, many of which we don't know right now. We don't really have clarity on um, who was given committee or subcommittee chairmanships um, based on these deals and based on McCarthy's desperation to, to get the speaker's gavel. But there are indications that there might be some. I have a question about that, actually, before you continue, which is, yeah, didn't McCarthy assure his entire caucus that gavels were not part of any deal? Well, he did. But as we'll talk about, with <laughs> so if respect, we find out that gavels were part of the deal. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a maybe we're setting up our next discussion about um, <laughs> about Congressman Santos. Look, I mean, Kevin McCarthy is a liar. He's a known liar. He does it easily. There's no reason to gloss over the fact that the guy lies. If you look back at the the the. Um, reporting from Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns in their book, This Will Not Pass. You remember that they reported there was this call that McCarthy made saying that he was going to ask Donald Trump to resign. And McCarthy himself and his staff repeatedly and unequivocally denied it, said it never happened. This is made up fake news from The New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. And then they produced an audio of the call in which McCarthy said exactly what they had said. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass and it would be my recommendation we should be done. This was, again, in my you know nearly 30 years history of covering Washington and politics, I'm not sure I'd ever seen 
such an obvious example of somebody busted in a demonstrable, provable lie. And it didn't matter at all. So nobody in the House Republican conference should be surprised if Kevin McCarthy is now lying to them about what he'll do to get power because they saw it and countenanced it basically uh, at the time. There are indications that, that some of the, the uh, chairmanships of these committees were, uh, were up for grabs. Um, certainly on some of the subcommittees, there's, uh, I think, informed speculation about that kind of horse trading. Um, Mark Green of Tennessee getting the, the gavel uh, over Dan Crenshaw in Tennessee on the Homeland Security Committee um, certainly raises some, some eyebrows. Um, you know, who knows exactly what we'll learn? But this is, I think, a problem for Republicans either way. Either we're going to learn that there was this horse trading that seems uh, apparent from just outside observation, or we won't learn anything more and we'll just have this vague sense that there was this kind of ugly horse trading that took place. Neither of which I think positions Republicans to make arguments very well that they're the party who's going to come in and clean up Washington. Speaking of positioning, David, I'm curious if you think any of these investigations will affirmatively help Republicans politically, if you think any of them will hurt Republicans, if you think it's a wash, you know, compared to Benghazi, maybe, um, or if we'll learn important things. I mean, God forbid, that's in theory, the point of congressional investigation. So I want to put that at the end, because it seems so far fetched, but you never know. So I, I want to know your opinions on on that part of what we think the House will be doing for the next two years. Well, let me put it this way. The um, Biden administration argument that all these investigations are a mere sideshow and a distraction just got hold below the waterline <laughs> over the last week or so <laughs> regarding their own handling of classified information. Look, I think so much is going to depend on who's running the show. You know, I'm the, the select committee regarding China, I think is really important. And Representative Gallagher is a serious person. And I am very interested in their work. I am very interested in unraveling what happened with Afghanistan. Um, the Hunter Biden laptop has been in the hands of people for a long time now. I'm not quite sure what else there is uh, to expose there. This sort of committee on weaponizing the government. Again, there is a there is an oversight role for Congress over federal law enforcement without any question at all. If it's going to go down weirdo rabbit holes, then it's going to be very, it will be to the extent that it matters at all, like the to the extent that the normal American is paying attention to congressional committees, to the extent that it matters at all, if you have conspiracy theory rabbit holes instead of serious investigations, then that'll hurt the Republicans and it'll give the Democrats a chance to say that they're just not interested in governing and getting us, you know, in, in, in making real and meaningful economic and, and policy choices. And then hovering it over it all is the debt ceiling fight. Uh, how serious do House Republicans seem to be? And that's going to depend on House Republicans. And, and I have a feeling some of these committees aren't going to seem so serious. But we'll see. Steve, I actually have an interesting follow-up question for you. Maybe all of you. But do you think the Benghazi hearings help or hurt Republicans? And bearing in mind the famous Kevin McCarthy line, that they were helpful. Why? Well, she's not president, is she? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think I don't know. I've, I've, I was so I cover them so closely. I may not be the best person to offer a, a sort of a, a a detached, distance perspective on them. I, mean, I thought that I thought Trey Gowdy ran the hearings well uh, overall, and despite the the conventional wisdom, the the hearings and the investigation turned up a bunch of new information, um, including emails that Hillary Clinton was saying, of course, this was an Al Qaeda attack in the immediate aftermath of the attack. I thought I thought it turned up some some good information. Certainly, that's not the perception of Democrats. Um, they thought it was a crummy investigation, a partisan political investigation. Um, and that wasted time and and money. I think we're in such a polarized moment right now that almost no matter what Republicans do, Democrats are likely to oppose it. Um, and that's I can't believe you think such a thing. Steve. I mean, what? I know crazy. This, this is why people listen to this podcast for that kind of <laughs> deep insight. Republicans and Democrats will oppose one another. Look, I think Republicans have earned that skepticism, frankly. Uh, you know, some of the investigation, the, this, I think the investigation that they have apparently authorized looking into law enforcement agencies that Republicans are euphemistically calling the new church committee, a reference to the post-Watergate, post-Intel, uh, post-Watergate Vietnam era Intel investigations undertaken uh, by Frank Church. It, it feels like uh, a committee to obstruct justice is what it is what it feels like when you're talking about some of the people who are likely to be the subject or who we know are the subject of federal law enforcement investigations running committees or having a say on committees um, looking into exactly what they did. I do think there are reasons that that uh, Democrats have to be skeptical of the kinds of oversight Republicans should conduct. And I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I would say that there is a lot of room for Republicans to conduct real oversight into what we're learning about these documents. That would be a proper function of the of the congressional um, oversight role. I think oversight into what happened in Afghanistan is another place to look. I still don't think we have the full story from the Biden administration. Unfortunately, I think those things are likely to be obscured. Um, by some crazy from Republicans at this point. I will just note that that uh, Representative Comer from Kentucky, who is uh, leading the oversight committee, is making an appearance on the Lou Dobbs podcast uh, today, Thursday. That's not a great sign, if I can say. I mean, Lou Dobbs is one of the most um, non-credible commentators in American politics today. He's no longer at Fox, at least in part, because he provided a, uh, a platform for people to come on and spout election lies. Um, the fact that he would choose to go on there, I think, should make people, should add to the concern that people have about Republicans taking that role seriously. All right, Declan, I want to talk about George Santos, because it relates to all of this. I think we're all very aware of how thin the Republican majority in the House is. And then there's George Santos, the glue holding it all together, uh, Jewish or not. <laughs> Two New York House Democrats are introducing today the Stopping Another Non-Truthful Office Seeker Act. Anyone? Anyone? Yep, that's an acronym for Santos. Uh, uh, it would require uh, candidates... <laughs> 
for Congress to file additional biographical information with the Federal Election Commission. Uh, But maybe most interestingly about this, Kevin McCarthy was asked sort of, what you gonna do? Are you gonna ask him to resign? Kevin McCarthy's answer to the resignation uh, question, and do you plan to discipline him? What are the charges against him? Is there a charge against him? You know, in America today, you're innocent till proven guilty. The voters are in power, the voters made the decision, and he has the right to serve here. If there is something that rises to the occasion that he did something wrong, then we'll deal with that at the time. Um, On the other hand, when asked whether Santos should serve on some of those top committees, McCarthy said no. (laughs) He will get committee assignments, um, but as one uh, House Republican said, he probably shouldn't be serving on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, that, that feels like a bit of a no-brainer. I'm going to go ahead and agree with that person. Um, so, Declan, where do things stand sort of publicly and privately in the Republican caucus and with Republican local officials in New York and otherwise? Understanding, again, Santos is really pretty important in Republicans keeping this House majority if he were to resign or be kicked out. Um, it would go to a special election in his New York district. That was That's not a gimme Republican seat by any means. In fact, at this point, I think you would be handicapping it pretty heavily for the Democrats if there were a special election. So Republicans need George Santos? They do. Um, yeah, I think I think it was a plus 10 Biden district that he won in New York. Uh, it's one of the bluest seats held by a Republican. So it's, uh, you know, maybe his lies were perfectly catered to uh, <laughs> that, that, that demographic. I don't know exactly the, the details there. But uh, I'm going to say something I think that might be a first on, on the Dispatch podcast, which is I think Kevin McCarthy is handling this correctly. <laughs> When you, when you start kicking members of Congress out of Congress for lying, you're going to end up with like four guys and, and like <laughs> 10 women. And as Steve just said, one might not be Kevin McCarthy. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and so, and, and, and you're, and you're certainly not going to have somebody in, in the white house. If, if, if that is the new, uh, the new barometer, you know, top of my class in law school, uh, the, all these things that, you know, he says that end up not being even remotely true uh, about his own resume. Yes, obviously, Santos is a con man, a fraud. So are a lot of these members of Congress. And I think it's a difference in degree, for sure. I think the correct way to handle the situation is put him on some crummy committees where he's a backbencher, does nothing, he loses a Republican primary in two years, and then he becomes a trivia answer uh, in 10 years after that. He's not... Ah, the Scott Desjardins plan. (laughs) And he's still there. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, well, we're already seeing the beginnings of, you know, he's going to... Santos is using this as like a heel turn of like... He was setting up to be one of the more moderate members of Congress. And now yeah. because of this, he's now palling around with MTG, Matt Gates, and the other, uh, you know, attention seeking. He's attacking Adam Kinzinger. He's going all, you know, he'll, 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 be, on the, he'll be on the Steve Bannon podcast today, Thursday, guest hosted by Matt Gates. Yes. Not, not so, joking. Yes. It's, uh, he, you, you have to laugh or you'll cry. That's not, he's not going to win another race in a, plus 10 Biden district doing that. So he'll, he'll, you know, 
have his two years of, of fame and just kind of become one of these people that we talk a lot about that has no power whatsoever within the house. Um, I just like let, let the voters handle that and, and don't put him on any sensitive committees where his pathological lying has any real material impact on our national security. But David, isn't this part of the problem that I agree with Declan, George Santos will have no power in the House of Representatives and maybe we'd all be better off ignoring him. But how does that make him different from any other person in the U.S. House of Representatives? None of them are proposing legislation that's actually going to go anywhere. Committee chairmen have been neutered. These new rules that were supposed to make Kevin McCarthy so weak, I guess we'll see, but I'm losing... I don't know. I don't know that we we got what we needed from these rule changes. And so in that sense, George Santos is in the same position as the other 433. We still have a vacancy. I, I actually can do math. Um, you know, 400 other 33 members, the difference between a backbencher and a committee chairman has shrunk substantially in the last 30 years. And so then, you know, you strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments And as a result, she raises $3 million and there's no difference because she wasn't going to have legislation, you know, a legislative record anyway. Um, I think I wrote this in the suite, but when you're you're running for re-election, the difference between someone who wanted to be a legislator and tried and failed is no different than the record of someone who just sat on the Steve Bannon podcast hosted by Matt Gates. You both have zero legislative accomplishments. And so how are voters supposed to, you know, we, we keep complaining that voters make bad decisions. Some of them rename post offices. That's very important legislation as well. Oh, I went through all of AOC's <laughs> legislative accomplishments. You'd be stunned how many are co-sponsored post office renamings. Which is a common phenomenon, by the way. When you go back and you look at, like, I believe the DeSantis record, lots of post offices when he was a member of the House. I I think Steve King's only legislation that he passed in however many it was, 15 years in Congress in Iowa, was renaming, like, one post office. AOC, by the way, was rated as one of the least effective members of Congress, which is kind of a race to the bottom, so it makes it sound like she's worse than she is. Uh, But nevertheless, she has had no proposed legislation even make it for a committee vote. So I here is what is most distressing to me. It is not that we have total liar members of Congress. That That is, then it's like, well, be distressed by human nature in American history. Like this is something that has been around for a really long time. Here, here's what's really distressing to me. The worse you are, it seems in parts of the GOP caucus, the better off you are because, you know, there, with, at the risk of, of disrespecting Obi-Wan Kenobi, wasn't he the one who said, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine? I think that was Jonah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's like the Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates path, which is the more you expose about these people, wild beliefs, conspiracy theories, unethical behavior, um, libertine lifestyles in, a, in the party of white evangelicals, right? Um, the more prominent they become, the more powerful they become. You raise their name ID, then they can raise small yep. dollar donations. And now they have a war chest of all this money. Then that does make them powerful in a way that because nobody's getting legislation done, um, that they are now the kingmakers is the wrong term, but they're the coin of the realm. 
Yeah, it's it's a totally it's a path that is deeply it's an evidence of a deep and pervasive corruption within the larger right of the United States of America because who's imposing any standards in the right? Well, it's not it's not the audience, right, of right-wing media. <laughs> That's not what's happening. I mean, they're lapping it up and and if if you if you're somebody no matter what you've done, as long as you can label that you have the right enemies. The New York Times came after me, George Santos can say, right? It was the Times that came after me and you can't let them win. Well, what did they come after you about? The truth, <laughs> you know, they can, that you're a total fabrication as a public figure. But if it comes from the wrong enemies, then you become the right person. And this is something that's a real pervasive corruption on the right. And and look, we saw this after January 6th. After January 6th, there was this moment where an awful lot of Republican politicians were like, well, now this is it for Trump. He's gone way, this is this is it. And then it took about 48 hours to realize that the this is it phrase applied to Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell with a lot of Republican voters. Their approval rating, ratings plummeted after January 6th, not Donald Trump's. And we keep wanting to sort of, uh, and and look, I mean, I think the Republican establishment and uh, the Republicans in Washington uh, richly deserve a lot of blame for the degradation of the party. But ultimately, but ultimately, no one is making anybody write a check to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Nobody's making anybody vote for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Steve. Yeah, I, I, I take your point. I mean, I think one of the reasons that, that this is uh, difficult for Kevin McCarthy beyond his own history of lying is the Marjorie Taylor Greene question. I mean, he has basically, by embracing her the way that he has, even after her comments a, a few weeks ago, in effect saying that she wished the, the insurrection had been better run and that if she'd done it with Steve Bannon, uh, they would have succeeded and been better, better armed. You know, it's it's hard to to come up with something lower than that, right? So he, he looks at George Santos and says, "Ah, oh, this guy lies like everybody else lies." But McCarthy himself has made distinctions before, and he's offered criticism of members who have lied. If you go back and look at the way that he handled Madison Cawthorn, when Madison Cawthorn made comments suggesting that his fellow uh, members of Congress, fellow Republicans, had been engaged in cocaine snorting and orgies. Well, Kevin McCarthy found his voice then. He really spoke out. I didn't do much about it, but spoke out against Madison Cawthorn and said at one point, it's just frustrating. There's no evidence behind his statements. Well, contrast that with what McCarthy and his team are saying about Santos. He can't bring himself to condemn Santos, I think, because... Uh, as Declan pointed out, he he needs the vote. He doesn't want to lose the Santos vote, but they really can't say anything. And they have instead been dismissive about these reports uh, detailing in page after page after page um, in and again demonstrable, provable false statements from from Santos. Uh, McCarthy's sort of dismissive. There's a report in Punchbowl this morning um, describing what McCarthy is doing and why. And 
the authors wrote, behind McCarthy's posture is this calculation, according to those close to him. If the GOP leadership takes action against Santos based simply on media reports, Republicans would be pressured to move against every lawmaker who gets bad headlines. That's the new standard they're creating, but it's bogus. It's total nonsense. These aren't, this isn't just media reports. You have the people responsible for getting Santos elected saying he lied to us. We don't want him in Congress. You have top New York Republicans who worked to get Santos his seat in Congress saying the guy's full of it. He lied. McCarthy just chooses to ignore that. So there's a clear and obvious double standard for Kevin McCarthy. I think it's based almost entirely on politics and the fact that Kevin McCarthy, having lied himself, finds it difficult to go after liars. I, I, not, to, not to defend uh, the, the new Speaker of the House in, in any way, because I think, Steve, your, your point on his motivations is correct. But like you, you bring up Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was removed from committee assignments two years ago. And is she more or less powerful than she was then? I, I think, you know, the, the ability for these people, I, I, again, like it's a collective action problem because yeah. he's easy to make fun of and, you know, he's going to be in the headlines and, and the punchline of late night jokes and what have you. But like ignoring him would be the best scenario I, to, to just kind of have him flitter away in, in two years um, rather than allowing him to then be like the Republican establishments against me the, and the New York Times are against me. I have all the enemies that you guys hate. So now, you know, give me twice as much money as, as you would otherwise donate. Um, like, I mean, you see <laughs> during the speakership fight and, and kind of over the past week, like his Republican colleagues are mocking him openly. Like they think he's a joke. Um, one was leaking to reporters, uh, uh, or somebody told a reporter last week during the speakership fight, like Santos says it's a guarantee that McCarthy will win. So obviously <laughs> McCarthy's screwed. Like they're, they're openly joking about how much of a clown he is. They don't respect him. He's hanging out with the, the coop caucus already. Um, and I, I think it's just just let him float away into into oblivion and let voters handle it because yeah. they will if they are a plus 10 Biden district. Yeah, in a, in a different scenario, I mean, look, we're, we're so far beyond this, it's it's sort of silly to talk about it. But I mean, if you wanted to, to do something short of pushing to have him removed from the seat because the voters did, in fact, elect him, the Republican Party just could refuse to, to let him into their caucus, right? I mean, they could say, we don't want people like this Right. In our conference, we don't we don't want this is the kind of behavior that we abhor. This is the kind of behavior that we expect of Democrats or, you know, whatever partisan argument they want to make out of it. But they're just not in a position to do it for all the reasons you suggested earlier. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but 
I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Steve, I'm actually coming back to you because I want to hear why Americans should be paying attention to Brazil's quote-unquote January 6th. Well, I think I think Americans should be paying attention to it because, well, for, for a number of reasons. This is not necessarily a, a new thing in Brazil. We're just seeing the the most recent manifestations of this power struggle in Brazil between super leftists and and the populists. Um, I do think that there is an element uh, at which... And tell we, us what happened, obviously, as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, on January 8th, two days after the second anniversary of the January 6th um, uprising here in the United States, supporters of uh, former President Jair Bolsonaro stormed and really trashed in a pretty ugly and violent way, several of the seats of government um, in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil. Um, after the inauguration, about a week after the inauguration of uh, Lula, who is a, uh, a, a leftist who had previously served as president and had been reelected, um, Bolsonaro had been predicting before the election that the election would be rigged, um, sort of echoing the arguments that you heard from Donald Trump here in the United States um, and, and making claims that it wouldn't be fair, that he couldn't get a fair shake. He has since repeated the, the claims that, th- that these things have been rigged um, and his supporters uh, took to the streets and, and really uh, did some serious damage to these government buildings, the Supreme Court um, and other buildings in Brasilia over the weekend. The, um, the reasons that American voters should care, I think, is one, we don't like this kind of unrest anywhere in the hemisphere. Um, we certainly don't like it in a, in a country uh, as potentially powerful as Brazil. Um, there is, it's a different kind of, of unrest in Peru, but ultimately these things matter as it relates to the United States and, and our uh, relations with the uh, folks in the hemisphere. Um, but I think it does have some implications to the, to, to the United States more directly. Some of the same people who were involved in pushing the lies and conspiracies uh, that led to January 6th were involved in amplifying the claims that were made in Brazil. And while I think some of the coverage here in the United States has had a two, has had a focus that was too U.S., centered as it covered what happened in Brazil. That's not to say that what happened in Brazil wasn't in part following on what happened here in the United States. I mean, I think there's a very clear um, line between the two. 
David? I would agree with Steve. I think that, you know, the the linkage of the right in Brazil with the right in America, in part because the efforts of people on the right in America to link themselves with the right in Brazil, um, is one reason why we should be paying attention to this maybe a little bit more than you'd even normally pay attention to that kind of event overseas. And this is part of something that we've seen over the last several years, which is the new right in America is trying to often cast itself as part of a more global movement. So Brexit, for example, would have been one of the opening rounds and sort of the new uh, in the rights sort of uh, narrative of the of the populist revolt. So you start with Brexit, then you have Donald Trump. And then for a while, there was the argument that Boris Johnson was also part of this and that rising new uh, parties in Italy. So you'll have the right will pay a lot of attention to the new government in Italy or to Viktor Orban in Hungary or to the government in Poland. And sort of this, there's an argument that, well, this new right, this populist right is all part of the same thing, different flavors of the same thing. But then if somebody on the right overseas does something wild and crazy, well, no, 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 no. (laughs) That's there, not here. And so, but what we have here is sort of this sense for a while, almost a decade at this point, that there is something called an international right or international populist right movement that is different from the traditional sort of Reagan conservatism of the American right, uh, or at least the recently traditional. Can something be recently traditional? (laughs) Um, The recent tradition of Reagan conservatism on the right, they're arguing this, they're linking in maybe to a deeper uh, and longer tradition of populist rightism that you can see overseas and that's coming over here. And so from that sense, when you see it detonating overseas, by their own argument, that might be a sign of its weakness here. The, the, the American version of this global movement might have its own weaknesses. And in fact, it does, as we have seen. And in fact, it has not heralded the beginning of a, of a new balance of power in American politics. In fact, it's been electorally repudiated time and again. Yeah, I, I think the interest of it in it beyond the normal interest you would have in a large country having its government buildings ransacked by a mob, which is of interest no matter what, the larger interest is related to this linkage you have explicitly coming from America between the American new right and the Brazilian new right. Declan, I want to move to a different foreign policy question for you. And we'll move to our last segment, which is worth your time. I want to read a quote from a, a book that has recently hit shelves. The past is never dead. It's not even past. When I discovered that quotation not long ago on brainyquote.com, I was thunderstruck. I thought, who the fuck is Faulkner? Do you know who wrote this book? Uh, it's the, the redheaded royal guy, right? Um, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so it has turned into a bit of an American parlor game of which team you're on, Harry and Meghan or William and Kate. And I find it sort of fascinating that as a general matter, it appears to fall along partisan lines. But what's stranger to me yet is that somehow the royalists are the conservatives? 
Um, okay, it feels like sort of the opposite <laughs> of what we're trying to conserve here, but fine. Uh, but for myself, I feel like I have a bit of a unique position here. I am anti Megan and Harry. Fair enough. But I'm not pro William and Kate. And Helen Lewis wrote this piece in the Atlantic that we can put in the show notes that I thought perfectly captured, in fact, what team I'm on. It was titled Prince Harry's book undermines the very idea of monarchy. And basically, she she summarizes the book as someone who has a lot of complaints about their pretty amazing life. Some of the complaints probably are very difficult, but, you know, not so bad when you never have to worry about rent or food or whatever. Um, and that some of the complaints are just downright petty, like his room was slightly smaller than William's room. And so he felt like he was constantly being reminded of his place in the pecking order, things of this nature. You know, how many kids even have their own rooms um, in that country or this one? But this is the part that, that really struck me, and it's actually the opening of her piece. Imagine a fairy tale city on the coast, perhaps with sailboats bobbing in the breeze. This is Ursula K. Le Guin's Omelas, a fictional utopia where the air of morning was so clear that the snow still crowning the 18 peaks burned with white gold fire. But Omelas holds a horrifying secret. Its continued existence relies on a single malnourished, unloved child being kept in a cellar alone and uncomforted in filth and fear. They all know it is there, all the people of Omelas. They all know that it has to be there. Some of them understand why and some do not but they all understand that their happiness, the beauty of their city, the tenderness of their friendships, even the abundance of their harvest and the kindly weathers of the sky depend wholly on the child's abominable misery. Most citizens take the bargain. A few do not. They walk away out of the city never to be seen again. And that's the title of this book, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. Yes, that's the monarchy to me. It's all relying on the misery of these people and us somehow feasting off their misery because we think they deserve it because they're rich or something. They were born into this. They didn't get to choose it. And so, yes, they're privileged, narcissistic lunatics who don't know who Faulkner is and read things off brainyquote.com with their ghostwriters. <laughs> I don't feel sorry for them in a traditional sense, but at the same time, I feel absolutely sorry for this guy. He wasn't given a good education. He wasn't given any good upbringing with you know, true character formation, all things he might have gotten had a hereditary monarchy not existed in this country. So we can sort of make fun of the narcissist now, but we created the narcissist. And Steve, I'm just dying to know your thoughts on this. But we are going to start with Declan. Declan, worth your time? Uh, I don't have nearly as strong opinions as, as you do on this, unfortunately. I, I wish I could could gin myself up to, to have them. Um, I. I'm going to exhaust all my knowledge. I think Harry is the one who did he sign up to to fight in Afghanistan? Yes. And some, so yeah. kudos to him on that. Uh, that's a plus in his favor. I don't think he probably had to do that, but he did. Um, everything else, he just seemed kind of like a, a. I don't know how they do it in England, but like a, a, across the the sea in Ireland, if you have complaints about your family, you just talk about it behind their back uh, to other members of your family. You don't air it out in a, in a book that sells millions of, of, of dollars. I, I, I guess they have to supplement their income some way if they're, uh, 
cutting themselves out of the the family. You know, they get this hundred million dollars Spotify deal and and the best selling nonfiction book of all time that will that will fill the yes that and will and Netflix and there's Hulu. I mean, it's so fun to me to complain about how you hate all this press attention that you get you say during your Netflix series. <laughs> Those are my thoughts. Those are my only thoughts and I will never have any more thoughts. <laughs> David, I feel like your family, y'all are still all living under one roof or, or were up until quite recently. Surely the other people in your family have thoughts on this? You're sort of like the Royals. I think that's where she was going with that. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> All of that hereditary privilege <laughs> that you possess no, over I, there. I was more the, referring to the fact that you've got some ladies under your roof, and this seems to have captured the attention of the women of the country, perhaps a little bit more than the men. I don't think it'd be possible to even measure the level that Nancy cares about this <laughs> on an electron microscope. <laughs> so, uh, and then as far as like my oldest daughter, who is interested in the royals, has watched every season of The Crown. We've not talked about it. What? Nor has she. I know. I know. What kind of father are I, you? I, I have not read one. one think piece. <laughs> I've not read one think piece about this. I've not had <laughs> one conversation about this. I don't even have a single fully formed opinion about this. Other than I appreciate his service in Afghanistan. And I think that all of the people who are knocking his masculinity in Twitter uh, need to chill out unless they've flown Apaches over the Hellman province. So, Well, David, I do want to just explain why that's happening. Um, there's a, a, and I know many of you listen to this with your kids in the car, so I'm going to use some anatomical phrases right now. This is just your warning. Um, there's quite a bit about his You need penis. to warn David, not the kids in the car. <laughs> David's already chuckling. <laughs> I'm like, what's happening? There's, what's happening There's quite next? a bit about his penis getting frostbite. Um, and so that's where some of this is coming from. There, he talks a lot about the frostbite penis. Mm, okay. Well, <laughs> has not changed my level of of concern. That doesn't make you want to go get the book, Dave. At all? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. Uh, okay, drum roll, because the one I've been most excited for, Steve Hayes. Tell me everything you think about this story. Don't leave anything out. Your way into the segment was to ask the question, not worth your time? And to me, the the clear answer is no, absolutely not. It's to me, this is the definition of a non-dispatch story. <laughs> it's meaningless. It's gossipy. There's really no way to understand where the facts lie. On all of us, almost by definition, the entire story is he said, she said, he said, she said. And it has no relevance to the lives of anyone listening or any of our members. So Declan knows this from the first. We don't know. We don't know who's listening. Maybe maybe Prince Andrew is a dispatch podcast listener or. Is he? Oh, no, he's he's the bad one. We don't want we don't want him. Right, <laughs> right. What are you saying? Oh, that's, wow. how, that's how little I know. That's what Declan trying to undermine King, the King, brand. King Charles, King Charles. Uh, maybe he's a listener. Well, he's a bad to one with too, him. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, who knows? <laughs> look, I, if if they're listeners, um, that's great. They should upgrade and become paying members. They can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> but it just is the kind of thing that that we don't want to spend much time on. I think 
earlier. Was it a was it a a quick hit you had in TMD or a worth your time? This is like a year ago. There was a Royals thing in TMD, and I no, it was the Queen dying. Oh, the Queen dying. That's right. Yeah. Which I think we have the right argument there that we could mention the Queen dying. <laughs> I think it's fine to mention the Queen dying, but we did a like we did a TMD on it, right? Like it was the thing. Yeah, yeah. and mm-hmm. you made I thought a you made let's put it this way you made the best most compelling argument that there were geopolitical implications that required us to do it as a topic. And you were wrong. That was, and you were wrong. <laughs> the Queen is a different category from Prince Harry. The Queen is, no, I mean, I, absolutely covering the heck out of the death of the Queen was the right thing to do because she's a world historic figure. Let's wait a few decades on Prince Harry. I mean, is she? Is she? Yes. I know you You wrote about her too. Yes. Um, that was a lot more Royals covered. This, this is what happens when people seek clicks. People just want clicks for their stuff, and I'm just sort of powerless to do anything about it because we well, because we we believe we believe in giving people editorial freedom. This is the what Declan may have this more at his fingertips, but it's the fastest selling nonfiction book in history. It is a national conversation, uh, and also I learned something really important about frostbite. Um, I did not know that Remy Lindholm, the Finnish cross-country skier, also got frostbite in that area last year at the Olympics. It turns out this is a thing that happens. And frankly, the three of you should be concerned about this more than me. I hope you didn't find that out by Googling it. Raising awareness. That's a principle. <laughs> Raising awareness. That's right. That's what I'm doing on this podcast. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is culturally interesting what Americans choose to care about and that um, that it tells you something about the cultural moment that we're in. If I'm and I'm being very serious about that, and that the fact that it has fallen along partisan lines and this has become another partisan team sport in this country um, is Wait, actually who's on whose side? I don't, how's the partisan? Democrats tend to be on Harry and Meghan's side, and Republicans tend to be on William and Kate's side. But that's only because people feel like they have to choose sides. I don't think. There, there are like three opinion leaders on either side who have set the tone for the entire country of like, oh, well, I like Obama and he likes Harry and Meghan. So Maybe. I guess I like them, too. I have friends who feel very strongly about this. Well, with that, <laughs> not worth your time. We will leave you for another week. Thank you for joining us. And if you stayed till this part, I feel like you got some real education on some medical issues that may be important this winter. (laughs) Uh, And other than that, apologies. So we'll talk to you next week. Your mockery gives me strength.